the phrase meet cute I'd never heard of until a few weeks ago. Meet cute. It's a phrase that sociologists have given us, I think. And they say that when someone of the opposite sex meets someone of the opposite sex, maybe they've known them for a while or maybe they've just met them, there's some little meet cute thing that takes place, some little intangible subjective attraction that takes place. It is a meet cute. And we say, you know, maybe this is some kind of leadership, some kind of spark of love at first sight. It's called in the secular world, meet cute. And that may be in relationship for all who are married. Maybe there was that meet cute moment. But I can tell you one place where meet cute didn't take place. That was in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) No, 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 no. Adam went to sleep one night, and he awakened, and he felt something was missing. He counted his ribs, and sure enough, and then that beautiful picture of God bringing to him Eve, and he looked at her, and he saw the rest of himself. He said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And, and Adam said, Eureka, I found it. God has brought the rest of me back home to me. There wasn't any meet cute moment. You almost could say they were made for each other, couldn't you? <laughs> couldn't you say that? And then they lived in paradise, but God performed the first marriage ceremony. We've heard it many times, leave, cleave, one flesh, naked, no shame. Husband and wife. And where did they spend their honeymoon? In paradise, I'm telling you. I mean, there was walking with God in the cool of the evening. There was relationship with one another. There were no in-laws. There's no background. There's no baggage. They're just celebration and pristine glory of love for man for a woman and a woman for a man. Paradise. We all would like to uh, have a taste of paradise. Every year for a long time, I've taken little mini sabbaticals. And I leave this place as I did a few weeks back and I'm 4,000 miles from where I think paradise is for me. It's a time of recreation, a time of recreation. And so Lisa and I got on a plane and we flew with a stop or two, gone about 14 hours. I envy the fact and get mad about the fact that she, when we take off, goes to sleep, bang, she wakes up when we arrive which is terribly frustrating to me, but a great gift to her. And so we fly 4,000 miles to the spot that uh, we would call our little paradise. And we landed and went to Costco. We just hoarded up on everything from tissue to 
you know, different kinds of meat, all kinds of stuff, some ice cream. And, and we, we, we arrive about an hour later at our little condo that we've been there, and we get out, unload all of Costco. Now it's dark. Seems to be nobody else in little condos in our building. There's four of them. We're one of them. And so we unload all there on the porch, and, and uh, I say, just open the door. And she said, uh, I don't have the key. And I said, well, I've got, and I didn't have the key. Oh, yeah. You didn't bring the key? I thought you had the key. No, you're supposed to bring the key. I thought you had the key. We're this far from paradise. <laughs> it is dark. Costco is melting right there on the porch. <laughs> I call the manager. Not there. No answer. Everything dark. I said, oh, oh. you know, I, I've, I know there's a hidden key under the little little stool here on the porch, and where is the stool? It's gone. <laughs> there we are, one step from paradise. You've got the key. No, you've got the key. Marital conflict. <laughs> We're going to talk about marriage in a way that perhaps you've never heard it before in the next eight or nine weeks, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter number seven, and it's all about relationships, relationships, relationships. And the primary relationship after the relationship you and I can have with God through Jesus Christ is marriage, because we in the church are, the Bible tells us, we are the very bride of Jesus Christ. Marriage, that, that fabulous relationship. If you're single, you say, well, this won't apply to me. It absolutely applies to you. If you're married, it absolutely applies to you because there is a desire for paradise in marriage. Now, Paul these words in 1 Corinthians 7 when he was in prison. Yeah, one of the prison epistles, that's when he wrote these words. I've been to the place where he was in prison. Many of you have. It's a dark place underground. How, how, how filthy, how horrific, but that's where Paul was waiting for his execution where he was later beheaded. And he wrote these words. And as I finally got into our little paradise, I looked for scripture. I looked for scripture that would speak to me and take me through as all of us now find ourselves, the one powerful word that all of us have that determines so much of where we are today. That is that big word that seemed to be getting larger and larger, the word anxiety, anxiety. And Paul, did he have a reason to be anxious? Hello? 
And so I bumped into Philippians chapter 4. I had read the verses, but I use those verses, and I want those verses to be your theme and my theme for the next at least 12 months. Here is Paul awaiting execution and death, and he writes Philippians 4, 4 through 8, and I presented this to some of our leadership last Sunday night. And in the weeks to come, I have coffee cups made, our church has, for all of us that have this scripture on it because it speaks directly to where we are. And Paul says, rejoice. <laughs> rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. The word rejoice means re-joy-joy, joy, two joys. And I love joy as acrostic. Jesus first, others second, myself third, J-O-I, but joys, joy, 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 joy. And then Paul, he compounds it. He says, again, I say, joy, joy, rejoice. So it begins with joy, 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 joy. Oh, Paul. And then he goes, he says, I want you to know that your gentle spirit, your gentle spirit, should be known by everybody. I have a problem with the word gentle. I don't naturally have a gentle spirit. I, but, but gentle, I always like to define it with the words of Carl Sandburg. He talked about Abraham Lincoln. He said, steel wrapped in velvet. That's the gentle spirit. And then he says, the Lord is near. See the scripture, the Lord is near. The Lord is here. If you and I could always know that God is not only omniscient, all-knowing, but he's omnipresent, he's always here. I love those pious people. Lord, we welcome you in this place. I've got news for you. God was there before you got there. God is there when you're there, and God will be there after you left. He is omnipresent. He said, the Lord is near. Boy, if I could just know that at all times. And then he says, in nothing, there's nothing for you to be anxious about. Nothing? <laughs> you mean Paul there waiting for execution? He says to us today in this moment of extremity in the history of the world, there is nothing for you to be anxious about? Well, Paul, how does that operate? And he says, in everything, in everything. And as I have sat down this verse, I've made a list of all of that which I'm anxious about. And I, I said, Lord, in everything, we have no reason to be anxious. Well, what happens? How do you do that? He says, by prayer. That's listing those anxieties. And boy, I've got a list. And by supplication, that means with passionate prayer. Don't just say words. Put flesh and blood on those words with passionate prayer, with supplication, and with thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. That's it. You're anxious? Let your request be known with God. And then here comes the dogmatic answer. The peace of God will rule your heart. Do you like that to happen? 
and will rule your mind? Whoa. In Christ Jesus. And then he says, as a result of that, he said, therefore, then he has a beautiful list that is there. A beautiful list. He says, whatever is true. Truth is a powerful thing. It's becoming increasingly scarce in our time. We think truth is not objective, it's subjective. How we spend it, no, it's not. Paul says, whatever is true. He said, whatever is honorable, honorable. He said, whatever is right, you see it, right. Whatever is pure, boy, purity, without alloy, not mixed up, whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. I have a problem with the word lovely. It's a feminine word to me, but it, we know what is lovely. Whatever is good repute, whatever has a good reputation. And he says, if there is any excellence, God's people and God's church should be about excellence. If you see anything going on around this place, I don't care whether it's the ground, I don't care whether it's the buildings, I don't care whether it's a Bible study, I don't care whether it's a worship. If it is not seeped in trying to be excellent, for God Almighty, you let me know. We are about excellence to honor the Lord. He said, whatever is excellent. By the way, that's a classical Greek word, and you could take it and unpack it for a week. We don't use it much. What is excellence? And whatever is worthy of praise, God's praise, God's approval, God's favor. He said, we are to think, we're to dwell, we're to meditate on these things. My goodness, ladies and gentlemen, that is a promise from God Almighty himself. If I give you my word, I'm going to do something. There's a possibility I might forget. There's a possibility I won't lead up and accomplish that which I said, but I would try to my utmost to do that but when God gives his promise, his anxiety, I offer you peace, guard your heart, guard your mind, you can book it. God has never in the Bible, in time, in place, in history, at any time, broken a single promise that he has made. He is God, and he is 100% with his promises. Now, I left out one word, one big word at least, in our study. You see the word uh, brethren up there? See it? Brethren, brothers. That means this promise is not for everybody on the planet. It's for those who are part of the brethren, who are in Christ, who are Christians. Genuine Christians, real Christians. And, and we define Christianity, of course, as conviction of sin, repentance of sin, receiving Jesus Christ in our life, putting our flag up publicly for him. That, that is a general definition for Christian, but what do we have? What do you have? What I have? 
that we can identify and say, that is the result of that profession of faith and what we've done in receiving Christ. What do we have? And then we run into the word we don't use much, but we quote it quickly in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. We, we don't use the word begotten. That's sort of an old King James begotten, but we know what it means. We know that human beings beget human beings, right? Lions beget lions, bears beget. We beget that which is of our kind. But it says, our only begotten son, somewhere God the Father in pre-time and pre-history, his son was begotten, and divinity begets divinity. Do you follow me? Divinity begets divinity. Humanity begets humanity. And therefore, in one sense, we're all made in the image of God, everybody on this earth. We are brothers and sisters in nature. We're biologically human beings, homo sapiens. We, we know that, but when we receive Christ, we receive something else. We receive his spirit, and now we're not only biologically, but we are literally in the family of God because when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, Zoe, Zoe comes in us. And that's eternal. So we're not only biologically begotten, follow me, but now spiritually we're begotten and we have now divinity within us. This biological body is going to run down. Anybody want to debate that a little while? I mean, that's, uh, that's true. But that Zoe, when we've been begotten by the Father through Jesus Christ, that is being born again. And now in you and me, we're not only begotten as humans, but we're begotten by God through Christ. And now we have that divinity within us that lasts forever. And we're going to discover in 1 Corinthians 15, this little Zoe and you and me, it's going to have an eternal body when we leave this earth. And so what happens, and now we have the Christian, we have something that's in this world but out of this world, something that is not transient but something that is absolutely permanent in all time. A man, we can take and make a statue that looks like a human being. Now, if we could speak or God could speak and make that statue come alive, whew, would that be miraculous? That is not nearly as miraculous as when you and I receive Jesus Christ and now we have Zoe in us and we come to life everlasting. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what we have. And as Christians, we can go as part of the brethren, the brother and sister in the family of God, and the church is the bride of Christ itself. Now we can go and claim Philippians 4.4. Anxious about nothing, the peace of God comes. My, my, it's there for us. Any anxiety? Just run it through that day after day after day. This is what I've done for the past weeks and I've done for a long time in paradise. You know what? 
we're really not human beings. A better description of you and me would be human doings. We do this, we do, I'm a human doer, I'm doing. And once we take a backup and we, and we come time to have some being, then our human doings catch fire, has meaning, significance, our priority. But the being needs some human being, and that's what happens to me, and I, I reformulate my, my, my spiritual formulation. It's a fabulous thing. And then you come back to what we're going to be dealing with, the most powerful, important relationship we have as human beings in this life outside of the vertical relationship with Christ is marriage. It's marriage. Powerful thing. Two become one. Oh, powerful thing. And we're going to be walking around in this most powerful, sacred relationship that man has given to us that God has given us as God has given to man. And there are only three kinds of marriages. Only three. There are bad marriages. There are okay marriages. And there are great marriages. What kind of marriage do you have? Tell you what a bad marriage is. A bad marriage is described in many places, but particularly in Proverbs chapter 27. <laughs> and that verse says, a wife that nags is like a drip, 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 drip. The same thing is true for a husband who nags. It's like drip, drip, drip. It's not good enough. It's not big enough. It's not important enough. It's not significant enough. You didn't satisfy. And, and, and you're born in the negative minus case. Drip, 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 drip. That will lead to a bad marriage. And it is a bad marriage. By the way, I want you to look in the mirror as we deal with marriage and ask yourself continually one question. What's it like being married to me? <laughs> Sit down on that one. Get your pen and paper out and just answer that honestly. Or if you really want to handle it, ask your partner. <laughs> drip, 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 drip. You'll lose all your... Joy. Actually, a bad marriage is joy reversed. It, it, Jesus, others, yourself, it is putting yourself first. Putting yourself first in that relationship. When I was studying this passage, this is amazing to me. I'm sitting on the couch where I don't usually sit when I'm studying, and I'm thinking about rejoice, you lose your joy, Bad marriage is myself, yourself first, myself first. And Winston comes up and starts barking. Whoa, 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 whoa. I said, what's the matter with you? Whoa, 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 whoa. What in the world? And I realized that I was sitting on the place on the couch that he normally sits. <laughs> you know, after all, he's a King Charles Spaniel. So I said, I get it, so I move. True story, he jumped up there. 
on my couch, I have a little pillow that says rejoice. I'd forgotten it was there, I'll be honest with you. Winston immediately takes that pillow and just takes his nose and knocks it off the couch. <laughs> I cannot make it up. And I thought, my glory, I'm looking for an illustration of a bad marriage, and here you got it, because it is when one or another are partnered, they sit on their own throne. And it's all about yourself. And we know, we've already talked about it, the wives will be cheerleaders to their husbands. We have Gentlemen, we're so thin-skinned, we need to be cheered for, and husbands are to genuinely cherish their wives, and you don't sit on the throne of authority in your marriage. Your mate does. Your mate does. It's not selfishness, it's selflessness, and when selfishness comes in, that's a little bit of a bad marriage, and we'll go back there. We're going to be in marriage for nine weeks. Just hang on. That's a bad marriage. What's an okay marriage? An okay marriage, listen carefully, is when there is no longer any fighting or fussing. Oh. When fighting and fussing is eliminated, you just have an okay marriage. I said, boy, that's kind of weird, isn't it? No. It's a picture of an okay marriage, a standoff. It's a picture of a marriage that has moved into the deadliest posture of apathy. I've talked to a lot of, cur a lot of couples through the years about marriage. When they come in there at each other's throat, they're arguing, they're presenting their case and their side. Man, there's hope for that marriage. But when they both sit there and say, what he does. I'm not interested in her. And you're together, but you're far apart. There's no communication. Any intimate relationship is mechanical. There's no sharing. You're going in the same direction, but you don't have the same goals. And there's a coldness and a hollowness and a just, we're going to just get along and survive. And this is also joy reversed because now there are other things, maybe kids, it may be friendship, it may be hobbies, that it comes before your number one priority, who is the person who is your mate under God for life. And that's what happens in a okay marriage. No longer any fighting or fussing. Dangerous place, apathy sets in. Well, what about a great marriage? Ladies and gentlemen, I was married for 58 years, and I had a great marriage. I've been married this Christmas for two years, and I have a great marriage. And I'm going to tell you something. God intends for everybody here to have a great marriage, and if you do not have one, you're not simply being obedient to God. A great marriage, we're going to be talking about bad marriages, okay marriage, and great marriages for a week to come. But a great marriage is weeding and sowing. You weed things out of your life and your relationship. You want a list for this? Galatians 5. 
flesh. You weed things out. You weed things out. You have to do that. And then you plant. Then you sow. You're weeding and you're planting. You're weeding and you're planting. It's an ongoing process to have a great marriage. It's a beautiful thing to have a great marriage. And when you both think the other hold the key to paradise, by the way, let me take you back to uh, Costco on the porch. <laughs> Darkness. And finally, she laughs. I'm mad, but I laugh. You're supposed to have the key. I'm supposed to have the key to paradise. And then I look up, and there's a little window up there. It's about this big. You see a picture of a little window up there. I said, huh, I wonder if I could crawl up through that window. <laughs> so she tries to help me up, and my shoulders were too wide. And then I said, well, let me help you. And I get her up, and we go, and we stand on this rickety chair. And she gets up there, thank goodness for swimming and a little yoga through the years. And she gets her head and her shoulders through. and. Finally, she gets the others through, and somehow she spins around and drops down on the other side, kapoop. How are you? Fine. <laughs> and she goes around and opens the door to paradise. <laughs> it took both of us. I didn't have the key. She didn't have the key. It took both of us, and all of us are married. Sometimes we have to go through those narrow places, but we have to go through those places together. The secret, the beginning of a great marriage, you weed and you plant, you weed and you plant, and weeds come up, and you pull them up, and you plant, and you do it together. You do it together. You know, I just know, well, You'll remember something about this sermon in Man I Are you willing, if you're married, to do the radical things that will take place, the boldness that you'll have to do? Let me tell you a secret. I dare you to try it. Well, oh, the preacher said I may not. If you will pray with your mate every morning when you get up, when at all possible, and you'll pray with your mate every night before you go to sleep. That's not too big a thing, maybe a minute, two minutes. You'll begin to take giant steps to having a great marriage. What's it going to take to change, to take those bold steps? Now, hold on. Something's going to happen right now in this room. And hold on to your pacemakers. I don't want to destroy anything. But what is going to have to take place for you to make this change? Is it going to have to be? <laughs> Want to have a great marriage? God's given the prescription. We understand, most of us, of what those are going through in Louisiana today or tonight with the 
impending flood and hurricane. We, most of us, been there, done that. But the early part of this year, there was a hurricane that hit Florida. I think it was named Elsa, I'm not sure. And they said, evacuate because it's coming. And a reporter was still there, and they saw a, a woman on the beach in shorts, baseball hat, walking around. The wind was beginning to blow and rain. And the reporter got out and made his way over to her and asked her, and said, are you going to evacuate? She said, no. We're going to ride out the storm. We've done it before. He said, you want to ride out the storm? She said, yes, my husband and I. And I said, what, what prep, what's going to happen? What preparation are you making? What's going to take place when this storm comes? And she said, well, we do through, through three things. She said, there's some drinking. And she said, uh, there's some watching. And she said, we had a storm once. They ripped off our roof, and there's some praying. You see, Drinking covers the backward part of joy. You, you do something to cover up a bad marriage. You, whatever it is, activities, a part, business, whatever, just like drinking, it, it, it hides, it, you endure, you survive a bad drinking in all forms, whatever that entails. And then there's watching. You, you're about others. You're watching this and that and others and a higher. It's about others. You're just watching. But finally, to put Jesus first, there's praying. There's praying. You want a great marriage if you're single or if you're married. You want a great marriage? God has revealed the secret of having a great marriage. What's it going to take to let many of us here make that radical change by the power of Jesus Christ? Marriage is the most important thing we do in this life as humans. And having a bad marriage is the most tragic thing that can happen in human life, except bad theology. Theology is the science of God, and if you think God is like this, or God permits this, I've worked out my own deal with God, and I'm going to follow this, bad theology is the most tragic thing, heresy, that can happen to any individual, any marriage. Man, to get it right and do it the way God does it? I'm going to tell you. It's paradise. So your marriage, is it best described as a hangover? Is it best described as hanging on? Or is it best described as a honeymoon? I witness, believe it or not, God's way is a honeymoon.